It used to be kid stuff, but now it's serious business. Not just leaps of comic relief, these modern day comics come heavy, dealing with the sugary sweet and the bitterest of human grief. Broken characters try to make whole their souls out of pieces that can't be put back together through any measure of force. No more blonde-haired, blue-eyed, chiseled guys swooping through the air, carefree, merrily resolving all the issues in each and every issue. Now the heroes are flawed, and the villains got good arguments for global domination. Artfully illustrated illusions aired out over story arcs that take volumes to cover. Make you want to read cover to cover and crisscross the pages looking for insights. To uncover. Welcome to Journeyman's Journal. This is not only the first episode of the new year, welcome to 2021, but it's the first episode in a few months. I hope you didn't miss me too much while I was gone. I can say I certainly did miss you. This podcast is a journey from inner places to outer spaces in search of insights and inspirations and a look at the world through my atypical mind. My guest this episode is Jordan Clark, a talented comic book writer who has his own catalog of stories. And in 2020, he got to pin two issues of Aquaman featuring fan favorite Calderon. His journey has taken him to some very interesting places. And as a storyteller himself, Jordan is pulling from his own experience growing up black in the DMV, that's the D.C., Maryland, Virginia region, finding his professional passion and writing stories that put a twist on old tropes and reveal new things about the heroes we already know. If you like Journeyman's Journal, then please share the podcast. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram for additional content. If you're feeling generous, you can even drop me a little something via Cash App at dollar sign J-Man's Journal. That's J-M-A-N-S-J-O-U-R-N-A-L. And that's also how you'll find the website, jmansjournal.com. Well, journeyers, it's been a while and I'm not going to delay anymore. This trip's about to begin right now. I'm here with Jordan Clark. He is writing Aquaman number 62 and has had a pretty interesting experience in starting off as a Maryland kid who has some family history in the entertainment and and writing for media, but uh, has come a long way from uh, where a lot of us started off sitting in front of a TV on Saturday morning or in our afternoons after school watching X-Men and Batman and then playing those characters and those stories out with our action figures not dolls we play with action figures and now he's writing for aquaman a character that has exploded in popularity in recent years thanks to young justice an animated series that finally came back after a, a hiatus that was far far too long a blockbuster movie that really breathed life back into the DC movie universe and a comic book that is really going some places that are different and interesting and just bringing some much needed diversity to the DC lineup. Jordan, welcome to Journeyman's Journal. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You knew the writer 
for Aquaman, the, the main art writer who's been working on the story for a couple of years. And you had the opportunity to kind of jump in and uh, when she needed to take a step back and you came in with some story ideas uh, to talk to the team at DC. Do you remember that moment when, you know, you were kind of pitching those ideas to them and they came back and said, yeah, that's great. Run with it. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's always interesting. A lot of the stuff typically happens when I'm at work <laughs> doing my day job. So um, I had an opportunity to do some stuff at DC earlier in the year. Uh, they had an anthology called Crimes of Passion, which was basically about like the detective and kind of street level heroes um, and these different romance stories. So I got to do a Batwoman story for that. So like I kind of knew some people at DC and I knew uh, the Aquaman writer, Kelly Sue DeConnick. Um, so, you know, it was one of those things where like I, I did it and it wasn't that I didn't expect, you know, to hear from them again, but I didn't expect to hear from them again so soon after that. Um, so I was at work <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically got this email that was saying hey you know uh there's an opportunity here you know for uh you to kind of come in and and do the story focusing on aqualad who is like aquaman's um he's like mentoring aqualad um so you know he's he's not he's not aquaman's sidekick per se but he's definitely like learning under aqualad and kind of teaming up with him um and you know aqualad if you don't know young justice and also you know in the comics it's a little different but you know the the similarities are that he's a he's a queer black kid uh who's got pretty similar powers to aquaman um and it's just you know kind of trying to find himself uh so i thought it was a great opportunity <laughs> to kind of come in and and do a lot of cool interesting things so um you know i was definitely excited you know to jump in um again not really anticipating you know kind of so soon after doing something else for them that they they'd asked me to come back so um yeah it was it was a lot of like man i wish i wasn't at work right now so i could mm -hmm. like you know like you know immediately dive into this but uh yeah it was great like they were really receptive to you know my ideas and you know we got to talk it over a little bit and then they were like you know uh the ideas you have here are so there's so much in so many different places that we could go with it we like to you know not just do one issue but two issues if that's okay with you and of course okay. i was yeah, like I was yeah gonna say, that's like right. icing on the cake do yeah you, do you want to do this awesome thing or do you want to do even more of this awesome thing <laughs> yeah so um yeah just really just really grateful for the opportunity and you know just for this to be kind of the first chance to to work you know in the space on this level, you know, was was really great to be able to do it with this character. And you had a unique opportunity growing up to see that what's happening on the screen in media on the page is actually driven by, you know, writers in a room somewhere coming up with the things that are being said. Your father worked as a writer in uh, in TV for both National Geographic and America's Most Wanted. Do you remember that kind of experience? Because I've, I've got a daughter and she sees me working occasionally. So, you know, I'll try and tell her a little bit about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Did you have that kind of experience of getting to see your, your dad working while he was writing those stories or was it a little more remote? 
Well, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of kids um, just having, you know, a parent who's doing a job that I don't know if unusual is the word. Right. But, you know, say your 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 parent is a musician or your parent is uh, like a like a sculptor, you know, and it's just it's just the thing that, you know, mom or dad does. And you just kind of assume that like all parents do that. Right. Like every 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 parent has, has a job. At a younger age, you don't really get that, like, oh, like, people might work in an office or people might, you know, do X, Y, and Z. Because my dad, a lot of the time, he was working in an office, but then once he started doing, like, freelance stuff, we would sit down at night, you know, whenever certain things were on and just kind of watch it. And, uh, you know, you'd see his name pop up on the credits at the end. Uh, and it was just kind of like, oh, okay. Like, it, it wasn't something that I necessarily considered as, like that's different like that like not everybody's thing yeah it's just a thing your dad did yeah um but i definitely kind of had you know that that behind the scenes um you know view just because he wouldn't i mean he wouldn't like he would sit us down at night and like tell us how you know to make tv but you know we would ask questions sometimes about stuff and you know he would go uh live on location wherever you know america's most wanted was shooting so he traveled a lot uh to different parts of the country um and you know just kind of tell us about you know different different stories of you know what that was like um so really got a chance to kind of see you know kind of behind the scenes of how television was made it was it was kind of something that just just trickled down i guess naturally like um you know writing is something that I think I don't know I don't know if certain skills are you know transferable you know from parent to child in that way where Mm -hmm. you know I mean you'll see in a lot of families like if somebody can sing like the Jacksons right like if somebody could sing like everybody can sing you know it's kind of one of those weird things where like yeah you know all all the siblings have musical talent but um well I definitely think there's a kind of um it becomes an environment that is that leads to you know if you come from a family of uh of engineers then the expectation and and the exposure mm-hmm. is about engineering and you know if you or so to come from a creative place and and see that as an option you know that's not that's something that would be encouraged in some ways or you know that kind of working in that field so it kind of sets the environment even if even if the idea doesn't fully take root but um you did end up going to school for journalism, so mm-hmm. it seems like you may have had a sense of kind of like the role of media and how it, you know, it was a field that somebody could go into. How did the journalism piece come in for you? So I originally went to school for music because uh, I had been in band since basically elementary school, uh, and I was playing the trumpet at the time, um, and. You know, going from high school to college, I didn't really have a, a solid plan for the future. Uh, I think a know. lot of us are in that club. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I had done the two things I had done in, in high school the most were sports and band. Uh, and I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to get an athletic scholarship. <laughs> so but I was like, well, you know, I've, I've been in band this whole time and I love music. Uh, so, you know, let's give this a try. And I went to school initially for music engineering. Uh, but the program that I was in seemingly had more engineering than music, like like literal engineering, not like, you know, music production, but like like how do you build a bridge? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like yeah. building out the studios and like <laughs> and the equipment and all kind of the hardware that makes the music happen, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I was like, I specifically became a music major because I didn't want to do math. Uh, so <laughs> I had a similar experience. I, I went to school for political science, and I had to take this this course on um, statistical analysis and inquiry. Mm-hmm. And about twenty minutes into the course, I, I was like, "This is math." They did not sell me <laughs> math. I, I was mad about it. I ended up doing okay in the class, but yeah, I was I had not signed up for a math course, and that's what they gave me. Right, and sometimes I mean, obviously, you have the general class requirements or school requirements where you know you need to take a science or you need to take a foreign language or something like that and it's just one of those things that you have to do over the course of your college career but this was like part of my major (laughs) were Mm -hmm. these classes and i was like i mm, no uh so after that i transferred schools i came over to morgan state uh in baltimore and was not out of love with music uh but i think I'm sure other people had similar experiences as well, where there's this thing that you love. And and once that thing you love kind of becomes work, kind of becomes a job, um, you know, that relationship with it changes. And I was kind of having that experience with music where, you know, I loved music and I love playing music and, and all that stuff. But, you know, once it became like you have to be in the practice room four hours a day uh you know doing all these different scales and things like that and it just kind of it wasn't fun anymore you know there wasn't really that level of experimentation or kind of freedom it was more this kind of rigid uh path that you were taking until you you know got a degree uh i kind of wanted to to break free and get into a more creative field so again you know thinking back to you know my dad and and thinking about you know just my enjoyment of telling stories and, and my, you know, curiosity. Um, journalism was something that I kind of settled on because, you know, I, I like, I like talking to people, you know, I like, um, you know, figuring out people's stories. I like telling stories. Um, and whether it was like sports journalism or music journalism, um, you know, I was kind of interested in, in following that path. So I think for me, journalism was uh, opportunity to, you know, kind of, get into a writing space, get into a creative space and, and kind of take advantage of, um, you know, some of the things I enjoy doing anyways, um, but finding a way to kind of stretch some different creative muscles. Very cool. And you definitely got the opportunity to uh, stretch those muscles and it took you to some pretty interesting places. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to go between two ferns. Welcome back to Journeyman's Journal. My guest today is Jordan Clark, a comic book writer and someone who's had uh, a pretty dynamic career on his path to writing comic books that you can now find on our shelves. You had a really cool job coming out of college, having got that journalism degree under your belt. You started uh, writing and working teleprompters. So, you know, every usually when somebody's on stage or on screen, there's actually a person behind the teleprompter metering that. So, you know, they stay on track. But uh between two ferns a tv show it was kind of like a mockumentary or a a mock tv show in some ways that um zach galifianakis was hosting and he had president barack obama on as a guest at one point and you got to be there to kind of see that filming and run that teleprompter 
yeah it was it was pretty crazy i think up until that point i had been doing the job for like a year or so and um you know the the guy i was working for like he he was working all the time you know what i mean so he was doing all kinds of events and speeches and you know things uh in washington dc uh but also you know just around the country and so you know my job was basically okay here are all the jobs that i can't do you know here are all the jobs that i you know i'm going to be somewhere else but i need somebody to do this job uh so i would get sent out to do that stuff and um you know for this one he had kind of just said oh okay like you know um it's going to be something at the white house uh you know just like go over and um you know meet 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 the crew you know at this place you know at this time and so he hadn't really told me what it was about uh, that's a really casual way <laughs> casual way to say you're going into one of the most secure government facilities not just in in the country but on the planet just go to the white house and walk in uh, it yeah. doesn't really it doesn't really work like that there's tons of security and people scanning you and scanning your stuff and then asking you where were you on like february 10th of 2002 right like it, it's not a it's not just show up to the white house but. right because he i mean he gave me the whole rundown of like yeah they're gonna like you know pat you down and you know they're probably gonna want to go through the equipment and all that stuff um but i still didn't know like i was like is this for Obama? And he was like, you know, it's just, it's, you know, something's happening at the white house that, you know, they, I can neither for. confirm nor deny <laughs> that you will be meeting the president. Uh, you know, so when I got there, um, you know, all the funnier die people were there and, um, I, it was kind of just chatting with them and they're like, Oh, like, so, so do you know what we're going to be doing today? And I was like, uh, a video. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, okay, well, come on. You know, and we, I started following them and we went, over into uh you know some elevators and we're just kind of going around the white house and eventually we wind up at the bowling alley uh which is kind of like you know not in the white house proper but kind of just like kind of off to the side mm -hmm. um and so you know i'm, I'm sitting there <laughs> just kind of like this is wild uh and then uh scott ackerman and zach galifianakis just kind of walk in uh and they're talking with people and i'm just kind of like okay uh all right like cool cool uh and then you know i'm i'm, I'm chatting with somebody and like what, so do you like have you guessed what we're gonna do yet and i'm like i mean i think between two ferns but like i still don't know what's happening uh and so you know we we kind of go uh up into you know like, like the white house proper we're sitting down um and you know they're setting up the set with the ferns and all that stuff uh, and so like eventually somebody was like, yeah, you know, Obama's going to come in and we're going to do this thing, um, you know, about, um, you know, signing up for, you know, Obamacare and, you know, Obama comes in and it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, obviously, you know, in terms of like presidents, like he's one of the greatest presidents of all time, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, you just, you never, unless you've been in the presence of somebody like that you know, who's like the room changes when they walk in and not, and not because they're president, but just because of like everything surrounding them. Right. Like they have a gravity to them. Uh, you know, it was, it was definitely one of the coolest and not the coolest moments of my life, just kind of having that experience. And then we're shooting it and I knock over, uh, <laughs> one of the teleprompter, uh, pieces of equipment and like the glass breaks and so then i have to like you know run and like 
get another piece of that and fix it and then the teleprompter thing isn't linking up with the other thing and like everybody's looking at me because you know obama only has like 15 minutes here and i'm just like Ugh. yeah uh, but, uh, that's got that's got to be the high <laughs> the high pressure moment like the, the 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 eyes of the world are now on you and yeah yeah i mean it was it was intense and but you know I, I got everything together and then it was like it just went you know like he was there. I think he was supposed to be there for 15 minutes. He ended up being there for 20 minutes because he didn't want to leave. And I'm sure he had something not fun to do after this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a great experience afterwards. I mean, he was just talking with us. We all took a picture together like it was surreal, but also, you know, just one of those things I always remember. Oh, that's really awesome. I, it's one of those kind of life moments. I'm, I'm sure you probably told that story a million times at this point. <laughs> Uh, I've seen the president. My claim to fame is I saw President Obama like seven times between um, going to the inauguration. I saw him at the the staff ball. I saw him at uh, when when he was candidate Obama. I actually got to shake his hand. Like I'll just Mm -hmm. I'll find ways to kind of tell that story or people will ask me like you you work for the president on his campaign. What was that like? I was like, well, I worked in an office in Jacksonville, Florida to say I worked for the president is kind of true. But it's kind of like somebody at the Postal Service saying they work for the president, like yeah. so far down the chain. But he definitely had that kind of that present, that gravitas, like you said, that um, definitely made you pay attention. And uh, you always felt like something important could be could happen or be said at any moment. Yeah. When uh, when he was in the room. So you worked behind the scenes in TV, running teleprompters, kind of seeing how the how the magic gets made. And along the way, you had you started kind of writing your own stories and kind of getting into kind of going back to that that uh, that storytelling. One of your first comic books, Hive Mind. What? How did that story come together for you? So, at that point, I had done like a web comic that was kind of successful from the standpoint of like i was i was making comics you know a couple times a month you know like i was able to find an artist and work with them uh and we were just kind of doing it just to do it like i think both of us were like you know this is something i want to do but obviously you know it's something i need to practice so um you know we had kind of just gone uh into this saying you know we're probably not going to make any money from this and this is probably going to be you know something that um you know might not amount to anything but it'll be fun to do and we'll both get to kind of like you know practice practice our skills and hone our craft um so after i had done that i was like okay well you know maybe let's try something a little different uh and so walking dead is still huge but at the time it had just kind of started and um was something that i think for a lot of people zombies had become like this really cool thing but then there was also just like a lot of like everybody was doing zombies everybody was like oh like we want to make the walking dead too um so i took it as kind of a challenge of okay you know this is a thing that's super popular and everybody's doing so if i were to do it um you know how could i do it differently like what what would be a take on it that would be interesting um that you know isn't what everybody else is doing so and that's a real challenge when everybody is doing something sometimes there's a reason for it there's a market for it there's 
there's yeah. good reasons for jumping in and then looking at that, looking for that creative or unique angle is, I think, the most critical thing is an artist myself. When I get ready to write, I say, this is a great idea, but how do I not retread the same territory? You know, exactly. how do I, how do you kind of get into that? Do you look at a lot of stuff and say, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Or what what's your process? So I. um I looked at it from the standpoint of one, like, what do people like about this? Like, what is it that is drawing people to it? Is drawing me to it? Um, you know, and, and those kind of things. So I kind of, you know, looked at it's not obviously there's the horror of it all. And there's, you know, kind of this fear of, um, you know, OK, you know, you die, but you don't really die. You come back as kind of this this monster. Um, and then if you look at something like, you know, Night of the Living Dead with a lot of the sociopolitical stuff behind it, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of like the 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 undead mass or kind of just like the the mindless mob um, and kind of the danger of falling into that. So I looked at all those things and then I said, OK, but what would like zombies are scary just in general. But like what would to me, what would make them more terrifying? And um you know, the hook I came up with was, well, what if they weren't like mindless, but what if they were smart? Like what if they were Mm -hmm. collectively intelligent? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we as a species have been very comfortable as, you know, living on top of the food chain, not having any predators, you know, kind of just being able to do whatever you want. Uh, But what if there was something that was as smart as us that also just wanted to eat us? Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, how would that change, you know, society and the way that we, you know, go about our lives and, and all of that. So that was kind of my, my hook for it was, you know, the, the zombies, you know, the more people they eat, the smarter they get. Right. And it's kind of like Mm. this group intelligence. Um, so I did, I did a few issues of that. Uh, you know, it was, it was kind (laughs) of, it wasn't sustainable, uh, for a number of different reasons, but it was definitely fun to do and definitely a good learning experience because I got a chance to kind of, you know, try out some different things in my writing, uh, I hadn't really done any kind of horror stuff before. Um, and just just getting the process of, of making a comic, because that was the first comic I, I wrote and, you know, somebody did the art for. And then, you know, I got it printed up and I got to take it to conventions and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that was a kind of a great, you know, first experience. And what is that writing process like in the context of a comic book? You know, as somebody who does long form myself, you know, more short stories and Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. You know, I can fill a page with as much as I want to. You're very limited. You've got those bubbles to work in, number one. But also, you know, you're when you're collaborating with an artist, are you talking back and forth about the ideas to kind of shape what they're going to come up with a visual? Are they telling you, you know, I've got this visual and this is kind of what I'm thinking is a story. How, where is the the sweet spot between those two creative processes that are very different, but working towards the same goal? Yeah, I think comics is something that, um, you know, it's 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 great in the sense that it's fairly wide open. Uh, so there's no one way to write, you know, there's no one way for a script to look, uh, unlike, you know, manuscripts or stage plays or, um, you know, screenplays where there's kind of a set format, like you can kind of do it in whatever way makes sense to you. As long as, you know, the people you're collaborating with are able to understand and follow the story, like you can kind of set it up however you want. Um, but like you say, the challenge comes in that, 
you have a limited amount of space. Um, you know, things have to not only fit on the pages, but also, you know, they have to fit in the word balloons and, and um, you know, you can't have characters kind of delivering a monologue like they might do in a movie or in a play. So you kind of have to make things concise and to the point, but still sound natural and believable and, and, and work in that way. So for me, um, you know, my process is basically, you know, let me get the story first, you know, let me work all of these things out in terms of what are characters doing? What's the overall plot to the story? Uh, what are the beats that we want to hit, you know, within a single issue? Um, and then from there, uh, you know, I kind of work it down into um, an outline where I'm able to kind of figure out, okay, is this working? Like, do I need to go back and change some things? Or, you know, is this going to be a workable story? And once I kind of have that done and I'm able to put it into a script, um, you know, that's when the artist comes in and then, you know, we're, we're collaborating um, in terms of, like you said, obviously they are the visual uh, storytellers and, you know, they're, they're kind of driving things that way. So my job is as a writer, you know, in terms of making the script is to make something visual, you know, on the page in my writing so that when they read it, they can kind of see what I'm seeing in my head. Um, and, you know, it's not always one to one. Uh, and that's good because a lot of times they have better ideas than I do mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, how things can look and, and what things should look like. Um, but I think I, I concern myself the most with just trying to communicate, uh, you know, setting, you know, where we are, um, you know, what might be happening on any given panel, but also kind of the interior of what characters are feeling and thinking and doing so that, you know, when they're drawing the facial expressions or the body language or things like that, you know, we're able to communicate things on multiple levels. Like you can see, you know, how people are feeling. And then, you know, when my dialogue comes in, it's either adding to that or, uh, you know, kind of giving you maybe something a little different, uh, you know, that you're not necessarily getting just through the visuals. Um, but it's, it's great. And I really love the comics format just because I love being able to collaborate not just with, with extremely talented people, but being able to, you know, bring these stories to life visually because I'm a very visual thinker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm always thinking of stories in a visual way, you know, even when I'm writing them down, you know, I'm seeing the characters, um, I'm seeing the action, I'm seeing these conversations, I'm hearing these conversations. Um, so being able to work in a format where you can get across the visuals in your head, but also get across, uh, you know, the story elements as well. I think is is perfect for me uh, and it's a really fun process of being able to kind of bounce things back and forth because a lot of the times when you get uh, the art back from artists it, it does change the way that you approach things because all of a sudden you know things are more concrete in terms of you know those visuals but also it might inspire you to say hey you know this like uh, maybe maybe we want to do you know something a little different here now like maybe I want to I want to you know, add some dialogue here, or maybe we can take dialogue from here or, um, you know, things like that. So it's, it's kind of a, a always evolving process, you know, working with, with artists and, uh, for me, very rewarding because, you know, that, that back and forth where you're kind of, you're, you're giving the artist something and they're giving you something back and then you are kind of, you know, bouncing things back and forth until, you know, hopefully you have a great story.
And you're using your storytelling in a variety of ways across different genres. And one of the other projects you worked on, The Skin I'm In, talked about what it means to be black in this time with so much going on. Tell us more about that project. So that came about, um, it started about two years ago. It's a collection of like shorter comics that I did over from two years until about last last fall. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> the the world and the country that we live in today, uh, things are very tense uh, when it comes to race. And obviously, black people, we've been we've been dealing with this for you know four hundred plus years, and uh, it's been it's been crazy to kind of watch how history kind of repeats itself. And going back and reading things um, like you know, essays by James Baldwin from the forties and fifties where you're like, that's me today. Like I feel, Mm -hmm. I feel all that stuff today. I'm seeing all that stuff today. Uh, and so one of the stories in the collection is actually a retelling of one of those James Baldwin essays about when he went to Paris and got arrested, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for a a quote unquote stolen bedsheet. He borrowed a bedsheet from somebody who got stolen that bedsheet from another hotel. Um, and he ended up getting arrested for it and was in jail for you know basically two to three weeks um you know wasn't wasn't really getting any uh signs that he would be free uh and you know because he didn't speak french fluently and uh because he was an american and he was black uh you know he was kind of being treated as you might expect uh, mm-hmm. And it wasn't until he was able to get into contact with somebody that he knew, uh, you know, over in London, he was able to get in contact with somebody in Paris who was able to provide him with, you know, an actual lawyer that, you know, the, the case came to the court. And then everybody in the court started laughing because they were like, oh, that's what a silly thing, you know, mm-hmm. and they threw the case out. But he was just like, geez, <laughs> like yeah. I was about to go to jail for like a long time over a bedsheet because you know i'm black and and kind of you know that that realization that like it 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 doesn't matter where you are you know not Mm -hmm. not that because you know no matter where you are you're black and you know that's a bad thing but more so that um you know you can go wherever but like discrimination in a lot of ways is still going to exist racism in a lot of ways is still going to exist and so um you know, instead of, uh, you know, kind of because he left America to come to, you know, France, basically, because he was like, well, at least here I can be free and be mm-hmm. you know myself and not have to deal with all of the things that I have to deal with in America. And, you know, even though the racism wasn't as overt, you know, it was still present uh, in Europe. And so, um, you know, that's kind of what sparked him to eventually come back to America you know, after, after being away for a while. Cause it was like, it, I need to be here to fight, you know, like all of this stuff is, is still happening no matter where I am in the world. And so, um, you know, it's better that I'm here and, and, and be able to use my voice and my platform. Um, and so that spoke to me, you know, in a lot of ways, just because I felt the same way, you know, as a, as a creator, you know, kind of trying to find how can I use my art to, um, not only speak to my experience, but also, you know, give representation to, you know, other black people. Um, and on top of that kind of, 
because I think sometimes, you know, you feel you feel crazy because you just don't see yourself, <laughs> you know, in, in any other ways. And you don't see your experiences being played out in any other ways. And, um, you know, those times that you do, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm not crazy. Like when everybody saw Get Out, we we're just like, yeah, OK, <laughs> like that's like, this is a, this is a thing. It's not just happening to me. You know, it is it, it is a part of reality that is this is an objective thing, not just a, in my yeah. head thing. Right. And being in Baltimore from Maryland, uh, Freddie Gray was one of those touchstone moments that happened a few years ago in many ways, like George Floyd. And unfortunately, it seems like the media focuses on the unjust killings of black people in in clusters, even though they're happening all the time. Mm -hmm. But I remember when um, the Freddie Gray case came to light and uh, I think it was, again, the power of video to tell that story of what actually happened, not just somebody's anecdotal, uh, you know, saying that, oh, yeah, the cops picked me up and beat me senseless or, you know, people in the community knowing that this is a thing that was happening. What was the mood and atmosphere in Baltimore or it, at that time? Uh, intense. It was it's I mean, another moment that I'll never forget just in terms of you know, how quickly things changed here in the city and just looking at the disparity between how things were actually going, you know, here in Baltimore versus how things were being portrayed in a larger media sense, uh, I think opened my eyes, you know, a lot in terms of not just how, um, you know, things change from, you know, your local news or what's happening in front of you you know, to, to a larger media scale, but just how we, we, we tend to gravitate towards the sensational, uh, you know, these kind of these bigger stories, you know, the, a lot of it was made out of the CVS that was, you know, burned and, mm. uh, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, the looting that was going on and, you know, you, you fast forward a few years and, and we find that the police, looted the cvs and sold those mm -hmm. drugs and that's a story that nobody really knows because everybody took their cameras and left uh and and nobody really followed up on what was going on so um you know it, and it really go ahead well the and i think the whole scenario what happened with freddie gray was certainly not an isolated incident but in particular mm. with the baltimore police department I mean, there was kind of this uh, this squad of rogue police officers who were as heavily involved in criminal activity as anybody else, you know, that they should have been policing the, the whole mood and atmosphere of of, you know, the, the relationship between the police and the community had really become tainted. And, um, you know, what happened with Freddie, like rough rides in the back of police vans were a well were a well known thing. Yeah, but I think that really added to the sense of frustration. It wasn't like people went from zero to 100 overnight over a single incident. This yeah. was, you know, he was one of many people who had been victimized by the police. And I think that's the the kind of the the iceberg that often gets overlooked, that it's not about Ahmaud Aubrey. It's not about George Floyd. Yes, they are victims, but they are the victims of the moment, not the that's not the full story of victimization that that leads to the frustration and and the boiling over and and 
all of the other the negatives that are that, that come along with this. And then that's being driven by infiltrators with their own agendas in many cases to turn peaceful protests into, um, you know, violent riots. Yeah, I think exactly what you said. A lot of people see these things happening and just assume that things are being you know set off because of a particular incident and it, and it is because of that particular incident but it's also the culmination of generations you know it's not just oh people in the city now have been feeling this way it's that you know their parents felt this way and their grandparents felt this way mm -hmm. and it's you know it's kind of this generational thing uh that kind of comes to a head um and i think a lot about uh you know when the rodney king riots are going on uh tony morrison was asked about it and you know her response was you know the only thing that's surprising to me is how long they waited you know mm -hmm. because uh you know the the incident happened they didn't riot uh you know the their arrest happened or the investigation started and they didn't riot uh you know the court trial happened and they didn't riot it wasn't until justice wasn't served that they decided that <laughs> they were going to go out into the streets and uh you think about how many times Things like this happen every day all across the country in all different cities. And the fact that people still wait for justice to play out. They still wait for arrests to be made. They still call for arrests to be made. They still wait for these trials here in Baltimore. You know, we, we sat through the whole thing with Freddie Gray. You know, we waited for, you know, the, the charges to come and the court trials to play out. And um, it's it's. I think a testament to, you know, black people and, and kind of our, our sense of justice and fairness that we mm -hmm. continue to, you know, not just take things into our own hands. You know, uh, we, we want to vote. We want to believe in a fair and just system. We want to have that, you know, equality and that equity. Um, and so I think a lot of the times people see looting and rioting and automatically think, oh my God, you know, those people, you know, they're, they're out of control, you know, what's, what's happening, uh, you know, in these cities, why isn't anybody, you know, laying down order? Um, and I saw a banner that somebody had put up, I want to say it was maybe in Chicago recently, uh, that basically said, you know, you, you've taken more from us than we can ever take from you. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's like, if you're, if you're so upset about somebody, grabbing some coats out of a Macy's, you know, if that's the, if that's the downfall of our society rather than, you know, elected officials and people given power to, uh, you know, carry out law and order, perverting those powers to literally kill citizens, uh, with no consequence. If that's not what's upsetting you, then like priorities are definitely out of order. Right. Absolutely. So how do you use your art to articulate that the skin I'm in is one way, but how, where's that connection for you to bring forward these complicated, painful, controversial ideas into the world of art? So I think, I think I try to do it in two ways. Uh, you know, the first way is obviously to try and tell a story as honestly as possible. Um, there's a story in the skin I'm in called the black experience, which is basically a virtual reality game as a comic. Um, and it starts off just with you as a black person, um, you know, kind of experiencing a day to day 
uh, a day in the life, right? So you kind of, you wake up and you see this new story on Twitter about police, you know, arresting a, a you know, eight year old kid for no reason. And that's just, that's how your day starts. And, and the, mm. the, the text choices at the bottom of the, the panel are basically like, um, you know, disassociate and <laughs> carry on with your day or, you know, kind of like sink back into bed and like, you know, let all that soak in. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a choice where you are getting dressed and it's like, you know, do I wear this hoodie? Is that going to make me look threatening to other people? Or maybe mm -hmm. I should wear this, you know, polo shirt and that'll make me less threatening to other people. Uh, you know, there's, but then there's also moments where, you know, you're, you're having conversations with your white friends, um, and they're, you know, saying some problematic things and, you know, the, the, the text options are kind of like, do I correct them, you know, and kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, have that conversation. Is it worth it? Or do I kind of let this slide because I don't want to be the black person, you know, talking about race and, and kind of bringing everything down, you know, and there's, there's all these different decisions that black people have to make. Throughout so you're really, you're really bringing people into that experience of, and in a recent episode, I spoke about um, what it means to navigate society as a black person, that mm -hmm. every day I walk out the door, I have to put on armor and put my filters up to screen for those, you know, these what could start off seeming like very uh, mundane interactions or but can all too often, unfortunately, turn into a violent situation that, you know, I'm I'm scanning the conversations in that same way. Like that is that is part of the lived black experience that we have to always be kind of checking for these these things that are happening around us, because as James Baldwin said, I can't afford to turn my back on this society. But mm -hmm. we're also doing that calculus of do I confront this issue or do I let it slide? You yeah. know, when when am I picking when and what am I picking my battles based on? Because, I mean, it can it completely reshapes your day in your life. You know, one a, a stop from a police officer can either be a complete non-event or it can be uh, the last moment of your life. It, it right. and is hard to know which which it's going to be and mm -hmm. how how much of that are we really in control of? Right. Um, and so, you know, that, that whole story is just kind of about that and how, you know, we, we kind of have to make those decisions. Uh, and then the end of it is your, you know, we, we pull back and we see that the person playing the game is just some white person in a Best Buy, you know, kind of doing a demo and the person, you know, working at the Best Buy is asking them, Oh, like, what did you think? And they're like, well, you know, I just finished reading the world in me and like, I don't know if this is accurate. Uh, and it's just kind of how, you know, even though we've been telling people, <laughs> this is what's happening, you know, for years, you know, there's always still that like, yeah, but what happened before the video or like, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, what? I, we need to see, we need the facts. We need to see that we know maybe they yeah. were just having a bad day like that, that whole yeah, thing. There's always this need for, for further verification of our truth and our life. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one way. But the other way, and, you know, I, I feel like this is also just as important, is kind of showing the, the joy and the humor in our lives and kind of, you know, maybe turning some of this tragedy into parody or, you know, adding a little bit more levity to it. Because I think, you know, we, we've also done that, you know, for generations, black people have always found a way to kind of just not maybe... 
I guess laugh through the pain. I guess figure out a way to to not necessarily you know, let all this you know kind of get us down. So in the same collection, the skin I'm in, I have a story called um, BFF, which is Black Friend Forever, which is basically about this app uh, for white people that lets them find a black friend. You know, mm. for those moments where you need a black friend, like you're the CEO of a company and you just said something uh, crazy and you need, <laughs> you need your black friends, you know, to come in there to prove that you're not racist. I think or... that's an app that might actually be able to take <laughs> off because there's some people that they need it. Um, you know, but the the twist of the story is that you don't pay money for the app. You pay in white privilege. And so instead of paying, you know, five hundred dollars for the service, it's well, and now you're going to co-sign my home loan or my business mm-hmm. loan or, you know, instead of, uh, you know, giving me, you know, you know, two thousand dollars. It's like you're going to you're going to recommend me for this job, you know, that I wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Um, and, you know, kind of presenting those uh, still systematic challenges that black people go through where just by being black, you know, so many things are kind of cut off from you uh, and really crazy enough all it would take is from some white person to say no they're cool you know mm-hmm. and then all these doors open for you and then and then all these things are, are available to you um and you know just kind of playing on that and making it kind of a, a a lighter funnier situation while still you know kind of involving all those things um but at the same time yeah like like not taking things super seriously because i think we need both i think we need we need black joy and black levity and stories of us just kind of you know living and 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 doing our thing and then we also still need to bring attention and light to you know a lot of situations that go on unspoken absolutely we're up against a break And when we come back, we're going to get into one more of Jordan's comics, Elk Mountain, and then, of course, talk about Aquaman. Welcome back. My guest today is Jordan Clark, and he's had quite the experience in using comic books as a way to tell big stories and small stories, funny stories, uh, stories that offer a a peek into the black experience and stories that just take us places completely unexpected. So in addition to writing for comic books that you've heard of, like Aquaman, he also has a number of comics that he's done himself. Elk Mountain is his most recent project. Jordan, take us into the world of Elk Mountain. So Elk Mountain is a comic that I started working on a few years ago um, that had a had a journey of its own because when I initially started it, I wanted it to be a superhero story that wasn't traditional. And I think a lot of the times the thing that interests me the most about superheroes is, you know, okay, you have all these powers and all these abilities and you can do all these things. Um, but how do you handle situations when you, you your powers don't matter, right? Like you can't necessarily you know fight your way out of an argument with your spouse i mean you could but you I mean, it's not good <laughs> yeah right. it's round upon, round upon. <laughs> um you know it would that would be one heck of a, a comic book for like superman and, yeah. and lois lane like they would definitely have to to uh, work some things out yeah, on it's that a one. very special issue of superman um yeah but but those situations where it's just like you know punching this thing blowing this thing up with their laser vision you know shooting at it with your you know special super spy car like that's not gonna solve the problem 
Uh, so, you know, what, what can you do to kind of get around these issues that are bigger than you or, you know, kind of require more, more skill, more finesse. Um, mm. and so, you know, the initial story was about a superhero who, you know, defended this small town, you know, kind of like, um, you know, like a Smallville and, uh, got kind of like taken away into another, you know, world, another dimension. And then when they came back, um, you know, something, you know, tragic had happened, you know, in this town. And, you know, it was like, you know, we always thought you would be here to defend us forever. And then you were gone. And then, you know, we didn't have anybody. And so, you know, we kind of had to learn how to, to fight for ourselves. So like, maybe we don't need you anymore. Like maybe, you know, you were kind of holding us back in terms of giving us this false sense of security. And like, maybe it's time for us to move on. Um, and kind of grappling that where like, you can't, if, if people don't want you there, you know, mm-hmm. as a superhero, it's just like, what do you, <laughs> you can't fight your way back into people's hearts. Like you kind of either, you know, do what they want or you, you kind of uh, stick it out and see what happens. Um, but during all of that, uh, obviously our political climate changed greatly. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm black, but I'm also Puerto Rican. And, you know, I, I was looking around and seeing, you know, everything that was happening in the Latinx community and, you know, specifically surrounding immigration. Um, and, you know, a couple of things came into mind. One, you know, why couldn't the superhero be an immigrant? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how would that dramatically change the story if they were, uh, and two, you know, the, the current immigration situation, like that's like, what can Superman do about that? Right. Like, what could he do? Like, I mean, he could take the kids out of cages, but that wouldn't necessarily make change them the citizens dynamic of, yeah, of the situation. Yeah. Like there's so many things that are kind of out of hand at that point. Um, and so, you know, me and me and the rest of the team decided that would be, you know, a very interesting decision. Uh, and direction to take the story. So we made those changes where, uh, you know, it's a small town called Elk Mountain uh, that's being defended by the superhero called Valor, who is, uh, you know, an immigrant uh, from South America and um, has, you know, been in Elk Mountain for a long time, you know, basically as long as anybody can remember. It's kind of a play on the Superman uh, origin where, you know, Superman obviously fell from the sky on a rocket ship. Uh, Valor was kind of left behind by, you know, his mother uh, on the doorstep of somebody, you know, to kind of take care of him while, while she fled back to South America. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's grown up in Elk Mountain. Um, you know, he's developed these superpowers. He's kind of become the defender of the city. Um, and same thing as the, the initial idea, you know, he kind of gets taken away from the city. Uh, you know, on a superhero adventure, but while he's away, you know, these supervillains come in and they, and they take over, uh, you know, and, and horrible things happen in the city. And then when he returns, uh, you know, there's all of this fallout, but the fallout initially was just going to be about, Oh, you know, maybe we don't need you here, but the fallout now, you know, because we changed, you know, certain things about his background is like, you know, we don't want you here, you know, as a, as an immigrant, as, you know, somebody Not just as a hero, somebody who, yeah. you know, maybe there's some fallout or consequences, but it, it becomes very personal about his, his, uh, ethnicity and race mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. Yeah. So I think a lot of the fears that are, are coming into communities, uh, where there are a lot of immigrants and, and people are, you know, kind of making wild accusations and, you know, there's a lot of fear, 
from the immigrant side, you know, because I think similar to the black experience, you know, you're, you're one of the good ones until you're not right. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're one of the, you know, you could be, you could have lived in the country for, (laughs) you know, however long and, you know, been a, been a doctor or been, you know, the owner of a restaurant or, you know, somebody who just, everybody knows you, but now all of a sudden people are looking at you differently for something that you can't control. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamics at play. Uh, you know, we really tried to create a realistic situation, uh, with Valor and Elk Mountain where, it's not a both sides thing. Obviously there's one side that's right and there's one side that's wrong, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, trying to kind of echo and parrot some of the things that you you're hearing around the country where, you know, people are expressing these fears. Um, and you know, their fears aren't necessarily grounded in anything, you know, Mm -hmm. true, but, um, you know, it's mostly grounded in this, this fear of, um, the other, the other, right. Uh, and so, you know, you, you've got these heroes, you know, specifically Valor, but also, you know, it becomes a, a story about community coming together to kind of overcome these fears and overcome, uh, you know, a lot of the things being done to tear us apart, you know, and how do we how do we get back uh, and find each other as a community again? So comic books have transitioned and I guess really have been for a number of decades now from uh, a kid's medium into an adult medium and telling heavier stories like what you just described with Elk Mountain that um, does it still have those classic elements of superheroes with superpowers, supervillains and kind of contending with these very surface level things but to go into the places that you're diving into where you're talking about race and culture clashes and the changing mood of politics and how that is then played out. Did you, I feel like it's in some ways that is the responsibility of artists, at least in the African American community for, for oppressed peoples to like our art is often a vehicle to tell messages in ways that can be heard when they are not being heard in the news in you know, the nonfiction media. Did you feel a responsibility to do that kind of thing or does it just come natural? And, you know, I think is we write and reflect on what experiences we have to draw on, then we kind of naturally turn towards those things. Uh, some people don't and that's fine. No judgment or anything like that. But, um, you know, I guess, is it just, is it part of the toolkit of your experience to reflect on those things or has it been more intentional for you? I think, I think it's been, almost a little bit of both because um you know the, the early stories that i was telling you again thinking about something like hive mind like there was some you know psychological and societal stuff in there but it wasn't really anything rooted in in my experience it was more just trying to tell a larger general story and it was fun and i enjoyed it and you know i definitely want to come back to stuff like that um but as I got older and kind of, you know, had again, more life experiences, but also just became, you know, more politically aware, societally aware, um, you know, telling stories just about people in, (laughs) you know, in tights with superpowers fighting each other or, you know, space pilots, you know, fighting alien wars or, uh, you know, all this stuff. Like it wasn't that it necessarily didn't interest me in that way, but, 
it felt like it was missing something and 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 every time it was always missing something deeper uh you know in terms of again my own personal experience or just a, a more specific you know uh identity experience and so i think when you when you think about story um you know there's certain human qualities that will always bring you in you know like you can have the most exciting chase sequences and all the explosions and cool monsters and all that stuff but if that's all the story is it's not really going to grab people and keep them there you know as, as long as you'd like and so trying to find you know those things for me has always led me to you know these different ideas and topics whether it is about race or whether it is about culture or you know politics or society um and not necessarily always in a way that's like you know down and and dour and all that stuff but but definitely in a way that i think people can can see themselves and, and reflect themselves and their experiences and honestly for so many people they haven't really had that opportunity to see themselves represented in the stories that they read and that they see so trying to do that as much as possible i think is, is going to open up a lot of doors to bring in a, a wider audience to a lot of these places whether it is superhero comics whether it is you know science fiction or horror because you know when you just a general human reaction you know mm -hmm. to seeing yourself <laughs> is always going to spark a positive response you're always going to be interested um and it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be interested in other stories obviously black people we have seen the entirety of of media you know in the sense of we you know we like star wars and we like star trek and we like you know friday the 13th and um you you like gone with the winds some of us uh we like uh you know but but you know french new wave films and uh friends and all my children and i mean we're you know we like anything everything you know but the stories that include us uh in our experience i think are always going to be a little bit more interesting to us just because you know it's it's not the norm right and so you know we're always going to be drawn and attracted to that and i feel like as much as we've made steps in terms of representation and diversity in a lot of different media um you know when you look at the numbers it's still nowhere close you know there's still a long way to go and so as much of that as i can contribute i i definitely want to and that's a great segue into talking about the run you're doing with the Jackson Hyde interpretation of Aqualad or an, in the Aquaman story, family of stories. And if you've watched Young Justice or read uh, Aquaman since 2011, you know Jackson Hyde as uh, Calder or Calderam, who is african-american or i guess is he african-atlantean i'm not sure i guess so it. yeah i mean his so he's he's well, black manta's son so black manta mm -hmm. is black he's african-american and then his his mother is zebelian so african zebelian i guess mm -hmm. and i guess so let's just say he's this is the black aquaman <laughs> for uh i guess to use a, a shorthand that hopefully will capture all the the, the diaspora wherever they happen mm -hmm. to be um, but one of the more interesting turns that the character took when they rebooted him with the new 52 and what DC Comics does seems like every generation or every 10 years or so is they do this reboot and just kind of reimagine their characters in some different ways is that um, uh, Jackson is now gay. He and they introduced that both in the Young Justice when it re pre kind of came back after a long hiatus in 2019 
but that also happened in the comics. Mm -hmm. So it was both um, this representation of race and ethnicity as well as, as sexual orientation. But before that, I mean, there's a lot of history. When you're taking up a character that has a history, a fan base, a following, do you have to kind of really absorb all of that before you venture into telling their story? Do you try to like measure that a little bit so you're not overwhelmed with where they've been so you can't take them where you think they need to go? How do you balance that history versus the possibility of creating a new? I think that's one of the, the bigger challenges, you know, doing superhero comics or any real licensed work is that um, because you're not the sole creator of, you know, these characters and these stories, you're you're always going to be, in a sense, you know, receiving and passing the baton from somebody else to somebody else. And so when you have the opportunity to work on these characters, it's a balance of, okay, you know, what has been set up before? Um, and not necessarily like, what do I like and what don't I like? Because, you know, if we were all able to choose on our own aspects of characters that we like and don't like, uh, and just kind of reset it, you know, every time somebody else took over, you know, there wouldn't be that continuity, uh, you know, specifically in, in places like Marvel and DC from, you know, all the way back to the forties until now, right? Like, you know, Batman has remained relatively the same since his inception and wonder woman has remained relatively the same you know with some uh you know changes here and there you know and and obviously things to keep them modern and, and welcome back my guest today is jordan clark and he's had quite the experience in using comic books as a way same you know with some uh, you know, changes here and there, you know, and, and obviously things to keep them modern and, and up to date. Um, but, you know, there's core essential elements to these characters that kind of always remain true. And so, um, you know, same thing for Jackson, uh, whether you know him as, as Calder or whether you know him as Jackson, you know, he's, he's still Black Manta's son, um, you know, which was cast a long shadow and he's still kind of caught between two worlds in uh young justice you know he's he's living on well he's from atlantis you know but he's got that that half and half lineage and you know the same way in the comics he's from zebel which is another kingdom of atlantis um dad's still black manta so he's kind of caught between the surface and and uh you know this these underwater worlds and you know i really wanted to keep the things that people love about Jackson and that's, you know, kind of his spirit, um, you know, his integrity, um, you know, kind of his, his willingness to, uh, do like, do the right thing, but do the right thing, you know, even in the face of his own fear, even in the face of, um, you know, dire consequences, because mm. like somebody's got to do it, you know what I mean? And he's, he's always constantly working against, you know, his, his past, you know, as Black Manta's son. So this is something that's always hanging around him because Black Manta is not just a villain. He's like, like Legion of Doom, super villain, like has almost taken over the world multiple times, mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, you know, it's, he's, he's the son of a very notorious, notoriously evil person. And, and so he's always kind of working against that history of, you know, I'm not Black Manta. I'm not, going to end up like black manta and so you know he's 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 a very selfless character um and so you know taking all those things that people love and know about him uh and then 
trying to work in some of my own stuff, you know what I mean? And that's kind of deepening Jackson's history. Um, in the story that I'm writing, we, we get to learn more about, you know, his family. Uh, we get to learn more about, you know, his grandfather and his grandfather's relationship with Black Manta and Jackson's relationship with Black Manta and then Jackson's relationship, you know, on his mother's side to, to Zebel, which is a place he's going to get to go for the first time in the story and kind of learn about that. Um, so, you know, really trying to like ground him and his family history, uh, but also, you know, as a gay character, making that something that's, that's clear and open, you know, for readers who may not know that about Jackson, uh, and also giving him an opportunity to explore that, giving him a love interest and kind of, um, you know, having those moments for him as well. So that's something I was just thinking about was there's this tension that exists in as the black community is this representation is increasing and there's we we want to see more black characters of all shapes shades colors orientations and at the same time when a character is revealed as gay then there seems to be this backlash oh my god of course they've got a strong black male character and all and now he's gay I think that kind of hit a fever point with Watchmen earlier this year when Hooded Justice was one revealed to be black because I don't think it was ever clear what the race of of this first superhero in the Watchmen world was. Mm -hmm. But then when they revealed him as being African-American and his history uh, with the was kind of just really laid out in the beginning. But then later in the series, it reveals that he's in a relationship with another man who's also white. Um a lot of people were just, you know, they completely gave up on the series because they felt like it was part of some bigger agenda. And I rejected all that as a lot of nonsense. I'm, I just say, you know, there there have always been queer people of in as part of our community and every other community. It's not, and that doesn't make any particular character or person less masculine, less feminine, more more of any of those things. It is, it's just a part of their reality. Mm-hmm. How do you? Uh, how do you work that as you're writing this story for a character or what is your even not necessarily in reference to the character, but what's your take on that? Because I'm sure you've seen it as well. Yeah, I think it's always interesting in minority communities when we reflect, uh, you know, the discrimination that we have received onto other communities, because obviously we know we know what that means and where that comes from. Uh, and and you know, just, just dismissing others outright for something that is just a natural part of their identity. You know what I mean? Just like we can't change, uh, you know, being black or whatever race we are, like you can't change your sexual orientation. Like that's something that is, that's who you are, you know? And so, um, you know, when it comes to Jackson and, and, you know, just queer characters in general, one, I think so many times, uh, specifically in the past, because of just general attitudes toward the LGBTQ community, specifically when it came to things like cartoons and comics and other things that were quote unquote deemed for children. Um, You know, there was a lot of talking around it and a lot of kind of hinting, but not saying. And, uh, you know, particularly a lot of animes that got, you know, translated over to America where characters who are in a relationship suddenly were cousins or were, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of like their, their queerness was kind of written out of the story. And um, just as representation is extremely important for us, you know, as, as black people or Latinx people or so on and so forth, like it's, 
just as important for, you know, queer people of all orientations to be able to see themselves um, represented honestly and, uh, you know, being able to be portrayed as heroes and strong characters. Um, you know, I think particularly in the black community, um, whether you're, you know, gay or lesbian or a trans person or bisexual, uh, I think there's been so much. I mean, even when you think about reality, right, you think about James Baldwin, you think about Bayard Reston and, mm -hmm. you know, these people who had to basically live half a life in order to be taken seriously, you know, in, in their respective fields, um, which is a tragedy because like they should have been able to live a full life and still be respected and still be taken seriously. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I, I want to bring that to these characters where, you know, Jackson's queerness is only another thing that strengthens who he is, um, solidifies who he is. And, um, you know, in the last couple of days, since the story has come out, just the feedback that I've received has been overwhelming, you know, in the sense of hearing time and time again, people saying, man, you know, this is the first time that I'm seeing myself, you know, in the story, like I'm a, I'm a gay black man, you know, and this is, and I, and here I am, you know, in a comic book as a superhero. Um, and that's been, uh, amazing for me, you know, but, but it's not about me. It's, it's about them, you know, and that experience and, and ability to see themselves in that way, because, you know, I can only imagine, you know, for me, like, it wasn't until Miles Morales where I was like, that's me. He's black and Puerto Rican and a superhero. Like, here, like, mm -hmm. here we go. Um, you know, like, it, it, it really means so much. And so, you know, being able to, to write that, you know, for me is important. But, you know, I can't even, you know, imagine what it's like for people, you know, uh, who have never seen themselves before. Kids who are seeing themselves for the first time in these stories. Um, you know, just how that resonates with them. So, you know, we, we're all black, you know what I mean? And we're all dealing with the same thing. And then when you add, you know, sexual orientation and, 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 and gender and all these other identities into it, you know, we only, um, you know, are, are, are facing more and more discrimination in those ways. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about lifting us all up. You know, I don't, really particularly care you know about a lot of those things in the sense of I don't view them as something that's other you know I, I view them as you know a part of our entire collective experience um and so you know any way that I can add you know a voice and representation to that I'm more than happy to do it uh and you know offer a platform for those people to eventually you know tell their own stories because I think that's that's super important that not only are we we giving you know voice to that that identity and that representation but also bringing those people in to be able to tell their own stories and and uh you know kind of give that perspective as well and one of the questions i like to ask as we start to wrap up is where is the inspiration in all of this for you it is something that you're passionate about but i feel like you just answered that question it's in bringing just more not just more great stories, but stories that are well-rounded, diverse, that represent the full spectrum of humanity and and looks at, you know, those things that are often considered taboo as strengths that make characters who they are in positive ways and not just as something to be ignored or written over, but that that representation is um, empowering for those who may not have ever seen themselves before. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what's coming next for you? You've got Aquaman coming out in two parts. 
I'm sure you've got a few other projects coming down the pipeline. What can we expect from Jordan Clark? Uh, so Aquaman 62 is out now. Aquaman 63 will be out in September, uh, September 22nd. Uh, past that, I've got some projects that are in the works uh, that should be coming out later in the year. Um, I'm also working on some graphic novels that are in various stages uh, that will hopefully be coming out next year and uh, beyond. So that's kind of where my focus is, is, is trying to you know get as many stories out as I, as I can. And what would you say for someone who's maybe they've got an idea cooking and they aren't quite sure how to move forward with it or um, a kid that may be listening and saying, um, you know, I want to be a comic book writer. Where where's a good place to start with turning that dream into a reality? I think the best place to start. I mean, the best p the advice I ever received, uh, which came from Kelly Sudeconic, was um, do it, you know, and I think. A lot of the times that that comes across as glib or a cliche, but honestly, you 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 never really know what uh, what anything is like until you actually get into it and start doing it. And obviously, you know, there's books to read and and things to study and interviews to listen to. But um, you know, the experience of actually creating something, I think, is is powerful and foundational, and will kind of give you the tools to. Uh, you know, move forward. So my advice beyond just doing it is, um, you know, think about ideas that you have, characters, stories that you want to tell, all of that stuff. Um, but start small. You know what I mean? You don't have to make 25 issues in a row, uh, you know, 22 pages each. You can tell a story in one page. You can tell a story in two pages, three pages. Um, and once you start getting comfortable with, with writing comics or drawing comics or both, um, you know, you can kind of start to advance into longer forms and, um, you know, eventually make your full length issues, make your graphic novels. But, uh, if you have an idea, don't, don't wait, you know, like there's, there's stuff that I've had ideas for, you know, that I've kept, you know, kind of in the pocket somewhere that I've been developing, but, uh, I, want to, I want to get them out. You know, I think, in in any creative field if you have an idea and you feel like you have to wait on that idea because it's the most precious idea uh you probably won't last long because it's mm. it's all about not even just the quantity of ideas that you have um but you know your job is always to create the next thing uh so if you only have one idea maybe think about <laughs> Maybe think about some more ideas because, you know, if you're writing, say, Spider-Man, right, like Spider-Man's coming out every month, you know, mm -hmm. so like it, it it keeps going. You always have to have more. Um, and, you know, just being able to develop those ideas and that's where doing the shorter comics will will definitely help you because you, you'll you'll learn how to generate those ideas, how to execute those ideas. And, you know, in terms of being able to advance in your career the the more that you can show people that you can create a thing from start to finish that you can have an idea that you can work through that idea that you can create that idea and that you can produce a finished product from that idea um you know the more people are going to take you seriously and are going to want to work with you um so you know if you're looking to get into comics seriously or if you're looking to get into any creative field seriously like there's so many different tools and ways for you to be able to do that now via the internet you know via apps via these different things where um you know you're able to create it on your own and it's not gonna be 
it's not going to look like a Marvel comic book. It's not going to sound like, you know, a top tier podcast. It's not going to look like, you know, a, a Warner Brothers movie. Um, but the fact that you did it, one, is, is a huge accomplishment because a lot of people don't. Um, and the fact that you, you know, have something in hand to show people, I think is impressive in its own. So, um, you know, whatever you're thinking about doing, like start, start small, you know, don't overwhelm yourself and try to do, you know, the most incredible, amazing thing out the gate. Um, but, you know, really work on honing those fundamental skills that whether it's writing, whether it's drawing, um, you know, no matter what it is and, and continue to build that over time. Cause by the time that, you know, somebody who's got the money, who's, who's looking for somebody to do such and such, you know, comes around and says, Hey, I'm looking for somebody to, to write, you know, this comic for me. Like, do you, what do you, what do you have? You know? Mm -hmm. And you can show them, Oh, I've got years of (laughs) experience doing this already. I've got evidence that I can show to you that proves that I am more than capable of doing this. Um, and that's how you get jobs. You know, that's how you get work. That's how you advance is, is having stuff on hand in the moment where, you know, somebody's like, when those opportunities pop up, you don't want to be like, oh man, I've never done anything before. <laughs> you want to be able to say, hey, I've got, I've got it. And I can show you that I got it. Um, so definitely if you're, if you're thinking about it, start doing it, start small. Um, and, and, you know, just, just kind of work on improving each time that you go to create. Outstanding. Well, Jordan, I've really enjoyed the conversation and learning about your journey. And I'm going to pick up Aquaman. And I think I'm going to check out Hive Mind as well. I like uh, those stories that kind of take uh, something that's been done and does it in a different way. And I'll, I've said myself, I think smart zombies are much scarier than, than even fast zombies. So uh, I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. And thank, thank you. you for sharing your journey here. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Welcome to the back page. This is a place in Journeyman's Journal where I like to give you a little bit more insight into what it takes to bring you an episode of the podcast. In many ways, this conversation speaks for itself. As a storyteller, Jordan is really comfortable telling his own story. And that makes it a little bit difficult when I want to bring an episode in under an hour because I never know when the gem in that conversation is really going to present itself. And also, I think part of it is my uh, novice level of kind of sound engineering that uh, I don't want to lose a good part of the story just because I want to get it down under an hour. And I think that's the art of editing. I know the kind of nuts and bolts technical part. Like if I You know, there's a lot of times when I just cut out when I stammer through a question or I lose my place in the conversation and I'm getting better at cutting those out and making it sound seamless. The art of editing in some ways is like the art of conversation. You know, a a conversation has a natural flow where there's a pivot point that will transition into the next topic that comes up and being able to edit in a way that makes it sound natural and not, you know, such like you dropped off a cliff and then picked up someplace else. That's what I want to get to. So the other thing that's happening is that um, I'm having to stitch these these sections of audio together. I've only made like one real purchase 
in my whole podcasting experience thus far. And that was the microphone I use to uh, record when I'm out and about. But, um, you know, Zoom and remotely are services that allow you to record remotely with high quality sound. I do most of I do most, if not all of my editing on my phone. And uh, I use the app GarageBand is kind of my main place to do sound editing. But one of the things I learned is that GarageBand has a limit to the size of the audio files that you can use, which is a real pain in my backside. So when I recorded that conversation initially with Jordan, I did record it in three different segments, which made it easier because the first segment is like 12 minutes. But the second two segments were each 30 plus minutes. And you can only have about a 20 minute segment of sound in GarageBand. If anybody knows how to overcome that, I will please let me know. I will buy you a hot dinner. Uh, I, I might even make you a hot dinner if you can tell me how to overcome that. So um, I had to figure out how to split this larger audio file into pieces. Audacity is a great free uh, program that anybody can download and use. And um, it allows you to do the same kind of sound editing that GarageBand does. A lot of people use Audacity for music and podcasting. But I was able to import those larger audio files, split them into two pieces, And then I had to save like part one of segment two and then part two of segment two, part one of segment three, part two of segment three. Then I upload that into the cloud. Then I have to pull it back down into GarageBand. Then I have to do my my polish editing. And then finally, I stitch everything together in Anchor. It's quite a process. It's sort of like weaving a tapestry, uh, but it's sort of the, the grunt work of podcasting. The main thing I've learned is that instead of just having one long conversation, you know, I do break it up and I stop recording and then restart. So I have the segments to work uh, to work with a little bit easier. Um, but it's just really hard to, to stop a good conversation once it's going. You know, stories like, uh, you know, when he ran a teleprompter for Obama or uh, what it was like living in Baltimore when everything was happening around the Freddie Gray case. Like, I never know when those moments are going to happen in a conversation. And that's the journey that I want to go on.